0: We continue on here looking at what this life in Christ should look like, ultimately, this life in Christ. So what we read there in verse 25 is this. It says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul uses this transitional word there, therefore, once again, And when he sees, or when he uses that word, we got to ask, what is it there for, of course? And and it's connecting us with what he's been previously speaking about and how it kind of ties in with what he's about to talk about now. It's an important word here. And what Paul has been talking about, if we go back to where we started last week in verse 17, it's this, he said, therefore, basically, he said, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So Paul lays that out. Now, of course, again, in in this day, and much of what Ephesians has been talking about, he's been talking about the church all coming together, the the Jews and the Gentiles, people from all different backgrounds and experiences all coming together as one. Now you're making up the new man, he says, the church, the body of Christ. This is a glorious, exciting thing. And, And so what he says here is that even though there's Gentiles now, Coming into the body of Christ being, you know, made new in Christ, you're to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, or you could say, as the rest of the world walks. You're no longer to imitate what you see there, you're to imitate Christ and live like him. And that's kind of what Paul addresses there in verse 20, but you've not so learned Christ, he says. You've not so learned Christ. In other words, you're to imitate Jesus now. You haven't learned that you just kind of come to Christ and add him to your life, but continue on in all these other areas. No, you don't learn Christ. You've learned that Christ comes in and he makes you new. And there's to be a different look about you, there's to be a difference in your life now. You are made a new creation in him. So, Paul, in those last few verses there that we looked at last week, he's been showing us that. This is like having a wardrobe change where you just kind of say, this is how I once looked, but I've taken off the old and I put on the new. There's something different about me now. We put off the old and we put on the new. We lay aside the things of the old man that grows corrupt, he said, and we put on the new man, the regenerated spirit, this this new creation now in and through Christ. Now, in the next few verses, Paul is going to show us some specific things that we're lay aside. In case you've been wondering, you know, like, well, what exactly do we put off? Can I still hold on to this? Can I still wear this? Or is this one of those things that I need to put off? Well, Paul gets a little bit more specific now in what we're going to be looking at here today of the things that we're to lay aside and put off. And notice what he begins with here in verse 25. He says, therefore, put away lying. What? Lying? I mean... You're starting without Paul? It's kind of interesting, you would think maybe he would start with some of the the bigger, more obvious sins, right? Like murder or veganism. One of those things that you think, these are the things that you clearly need to just do away with that are obvious, right? I know I just offended many people there. Forgive me, jump down to verse 32 and put that into practice here if you can. Um, But you see, we think, oh yeah, put aside the obvious things. But isn't lying like one of those things that we can easily excuse as Christians? Thinking, I mean, like 90%, maybe 95% of the time I'm speaking truth, but the odd time, I mean, come on, what's, what's the harm in a little white lie? We can easily excuse lying. But yet Paul starts with the saying, listen, if you're a new Christian Christ, here's the things that you're to put aside. You're to put away lying. And yet lying is that one sin that I think can so easily get a pass in Christians' lives. I remember hearing about a pastor that came to his his, uh, congregation and said, Church, next week I'm going to be giving a sermon on lying. And I want you as a bit of a homework this coming week to read Mark chapter 17. So the church all went away. They came back the next Sunday and the pastor said, How many people read Mark 17? About every hand went up. And the pastor said, Uh, There's only 16 chapters in the book of Mark, so buckle up, this is gonna be a bumpy ride in this sermon for you. And it's true, we can easily just think, yeah, we can get away with a little bit of lying here and there, no problem. So why does Paul start with this area of lying? Because this is such an affront to God. Do you understand that this is one thing that God cannot do? God cannot lie. God is a God of truth. In fact, Paul says as much so even in verse 21 when he says, if indeed you have heard him, Jesus, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. God is a God of truth. And God cannot lie. He tells us elsewhere in God's word in Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make It good Titus chapter one verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So we need to see the importance of upholding the truth. This is important to God because God is a God that cannot lie, and if we're followers of Christ, we're to be representing Jesus in this world. And we do not represent Jesus well in this world if we're not people of truth, because God is a God of truth. And so Paul says, you put away lying and you speak truth to your neighbor, he says, for we are members of one another. Now, this is, of course, something that we're to do for all people, to all people, speak the truth, right? This isn't something that we pick and choose or, you know, some people are exempt from us having to speak the truth. No, we do it to all people. But what Paul has in mind here, just so you understand, is he's saying, this is something you are especially to do in that household of faith. He's identifying that we do this together as a community of believers. As he says, we are members of one another. He's speaking of the church. He's speaking of how we come together now as one body, the body of Christ, the church, and it's even more absurd if we're not with one another speaking truth with each other. Because what happens is that you don't, just hurt the individual that you're lying to, but you're hurting others and and you're hurting yourself because you're all connected together. It's like the eye saying to the foot as the body makes its midnight run to get a snack and dodge all the items in the house in the dark, right? So as to not disturb anybody. And the eye says, oh, the coffee table, beware of that. Oh, you're a good foot away from the coffee table. And he's like laughing under his breath, thinking that this toe is gonna crash in it. And then boom, sure enough, crash in the coffee table, pinky toe at 90 degrees now. And what's happening, the whole body is feeling it. The eye isn't sitting there going, oh man, I got you good on that one. No, the eye's going, what have I done? That was stupid. Now we're all feeling this. That's the same way in the body of Christ. We're connected together. And the whole body is affected and hurt in that deception and lie that's given. It should not be the way that the body operates together. John Stott said, for fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines fellowship while truth strengthens it. So true, and so we need to speak truth and as, remember what Paul said in verse 15, that we need to speak the truth in what? In love, thank you. Speak the truth in love. Don't feel like you need to be the truth police in the church now walk around and be like, well, I just gotta give it out as it as I see it. If I see something, I'm gonna just speak it out and I gotta speak the truth. Sometimes people respond and act that way and think like they're doing everybody a favor by just speaking the truth. And I don't care what people think about me, I'm just gonna say the truth. Paul says, listen, you know, speak the truth in love. You should be concerned about how people are gonna receive that. Oh, you don't excuse the truth and, and, and do away with truth, but you figure out how best to deliver truth, speak truth in a way that others are gonna receive it and, and be blessed by it. Oh, there might be some hurt involved at first, but if you do it in love, it's gonna be able to be received and, and worked through. So speak the truth in love. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. I love what Paul's doing here. He's bringing up, he quotes here from Psalm 4, verse 4. In in chapter, or sorry, in verse 25, he's quoting from Zechariah 8, verse 16, when he says, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. So Paul's bringing up Old Testament examples here. and He's saying, listen, this is something that we've been told all along here. This is not something new, right? He's quoting from Old Testament scripture, but He says, be angry and do not sin. A lot of us like to read those first two words and end it right there on verse 26 and go, well, okay, I'm gonna meditate on that verse all week here. Be angry, we like that one. We think that's something I can do. But Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not sin, it's interesting that this seems to show that there is a place for anger, but that it should never lead to sin. And that's the problem with anger, isn't it? It usually causes us to boil over with wrath and lose it to the point where we sin. The Bible shows that there's a righteous kind of anger. There should be things that really upset us as Christians when we see that there's injustice or evil happening. Sin is taking place. That should cause us to rise up with righteous anger but it's an anger that's under control that doesn't lead to sin. Jesus exemplified that, didn't he? When he came walking in the temple and he sees all the corruption going on, the business and the the money changers, and Jesus overturned those tables, but he didn't just rush in and all of a sudden flip out in wrath. No, he reached down and gathered those cords and made a whip. He was under control, but yet he showed anger, a righteous anger. The problem is... (laughs) We're not Jesus and we sometimes blur those lines between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And we see anger turning to sin. It's a slippery slope and we need to be careful of it. I read a story just this past week of a woman in Mexico who saw her husband's phone sitting there. She said, I'm gonna skim through his phone, picked up the phone and started to look through his photos. To her shock, she saw her husband in photos, in not good photos, with a much younger woman. And and this wife freaked out, as you can imagine. She freaked out to the point where she just went and grabbed a knife and she went and started to stab her husband. True story. She just started to stab her husband. And the husband was able to get his like what and he was able to arrest the knife away from her. And like, honey, what's going on in here? What are you doing? No one said, I caught you. I saw these pictures of you with a younger woman and the husband looked at his phone and said, this is me and you like years ago. She didn't recognize herself. And she flipped out. True story. You see, at one point, she thinks her husband's with another woman, righteous anger, but she moved right into unrighteous anger when she grabbed that knife and thought, I'm gonna take this man out. And if she would have been able just to go and say, okay, I'm not happy about this, but I'm gonna deal with this the right way. She would have saved herself much headache, jail time, holes in her husband, right? I mean, she would have saved herself a lot, but she didn't do that. And how we need to be aware that we need to be careful that anger doesn't lead to sin. Psalm 37, eight says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. It's exactly what happens so often when we allow anger to get the better of us and we react and respond. In sin, it only causes harm. So Paul, and the word of God more so, gives us some very good godly counsel for us. When it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, whatever's troubling you, don't let it continue to brew and fester in your mind, in your thoughts. Don't, don't go over how am I going to execute revenge or get even on this or you know, make this person pay. Don't dwell on those things. Don't give it an opportunity to grow and intensify. Notice what Paul adds right after saying that. He says, don't give place to the devil. See, that's exactly what happens when we begin to hold on to anger and we begin to let it play over in our mind is that we're giving a place for the devil to get in there. We're opening the door for the devil to get in there and say, yeah, you have every right to feel this way. In fact, this person should never have done that. You have a right to be angry and and you gotta make them pay now for that. You're giving place for the devil. See, he's looking for any opportunity. He can get in there and get a foothold on your life and on your thoughts to have you carry out his will over God's will. So the Bible just simply says, don't let that happen. Don't go to sleep until you've resolved this anger and this wrath, until you've seen it subside. It's interesting because it's been discovered how sleep deprivation can be a very useful tool if, say, prisoners and, and trying to get truth out of prisoners or get them to confess or whatever it might be. It's been, been a very useful tool here to have prisoners cave to the demands of their captors. It's like if you were not able to go to sleep until you dealt with that issue, you'd reach a point where you were just ready to confess whatever it took to give you a good night's rest, right? That's kind of what Paul's saying. And this becomes even more particularly Pertinent for married couples, wouldn't you say? Don't let the sun go down until you resolve this. Don't let it go down your wrath. Very wise counsel there, because you could both be as husband might be the most stubborn people where nobody wants to concede or give in, but put sleep on the line. Suddenly, three AM rolls around and somebody's like willing to go. Okay, it's all my fault. I get it. It's me. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Good night. You're just ready to give in. And so, Paul is saying here, be quick to desire to forgive or seek forgiveness. Walk in grace and humility. Whether you're the offender or the offended, don't give room to wrath, but be quick to seek forgiveness. That's what Paul is getting at here for us. Because if not, and and you might think, This is just such a little, very insignificant thing in my life. It's a small thing, do I really need to deal with it? Understand that that the enemy doesn't need much to compound this and cause this to grow and become a much bigger monster than you ever could have imagined it would be. In fact, when they were looking at how to build a suspension bridge over Niagara, they thought the builders and the, um, you know, designers, how are we ever gonna get a, a, a strong enough cable across here to a suspension bridge? How are we ever gonna get that across? They, they weren't sure how they could ever do that. Well, one day, you know, they're flying a kite out there, windy, and suddenly they realize this kite can land on the other side. The kite lands on the other side, and now they got this string that bridged the gap. And with that one piece of little string, a kite string, they attached a, a little rope onto it that could make it to the other side. And now with that little rope, they added another bigger rope to it for each other's side, to where that rope got strong enough where they could add a small cable across. And with that cable, attached another stronger cable. Suddenly they had a cable that was fitting for a suspension bridge. All that came together from just a simple kite string. That's exactly how the devil loves to work in our lives, is by thinking, oh, this is something small, very insignificant. This isn't going to do any damage, but the devil gets a hold of it. And it begins to add to it, compound it, and it begins to grow into a much bigger problem than we ever could have imagined it would. Don't give place or an opportunity to the devil. The enemy loves to turn a small thing into a very strong reason for contempt and bitterness. When you let things like anger and wrath go unchecked, it becomes the spark the enemy needs to set a destructive fire. Don't give the enemy any room for such things. Guard your thoughts. Guard your heart. Don't give place for the enemy. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to release these emotions and anger that can so easily turn into such a a beast that you don't have a grip on any longer. Be quick to release that. At least bringing forgiveness to the other person or at least turning that over to the Lord. Casting all that on him. We'll talk a bit more about that here, but verse 28 says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. So there's those that love to confuse thine with mine, and take what's not theirs, right? And, and we like to think of, of theft as something being much, you know, bigger than it, than it can be at times. We like to think of theft as well going into a store, and literally grabbing something out the shop, tucking in your pocket, walking out with it. Or, you know, going to somebody's home and taking something that's not yours. But what about not putting in an honest, you know, day's work and robbing from your boss? Or what about cheating on your taxes? See, Paul says you're to no longer be people that are trying to get ahead through dishonest means. And again, it doesn't have to be a big thing, it can be a very small thing. So what Paul says is, stop stealing, but then work. Let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Make an honest wage and do so to where you can be a blessing to other people. I think that's so awesome. You see, well, I'll get to that in a second here. I'm getting ahead of myself. What's interesting is what, when you see these things that Paul has brought up so far, lying, uh, stealing, anger, these are all very much characteristics of, of the enemy, right? Satan is known as the father of lies, father of lies. He's the murderer, uh, anger, hatred. He's a thief. John 10, 10, Jesus said as much, the thief Does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Do you see that? I love what Jesus says there. I've come that they might have life and life more abundantly. See, what Jesus does is he wants to come and impart life and add life to you. Satan only takes away. And what Paul says here is put off these things, but don't just put off, because what a lot of people think of as the Christian life is just it's all about a bunch of negatives. Don't do this, don't do that. I just have to seek to not go there, not go there, not do this, not do that, and it's all just about just trying to not get in trouble. That's what a lot of people think of the Christian life, but that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, certainly put off the oil because those things are gonna hurt you, but I wanna bring blessing to you. He doesn't say just don't lie. He says, speak truth. Do that which is gonna encourage and edify others. Don't just stop stealing, but rather, Do the positive work, and work so that you can have opportunity now to bless others. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Satan sought to cause Adam and Eve right in the garden to steal. He made Judas become a thief. But Jesus, however, turned to the thief on the cross. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He imparts life. And he wants to impart life to you. And and, and he does so by saying, here's how I know you're gonna be blessed. You're gonna be blessed when you speak truth. You're gonna be blessed when you put away anger. You're gonna be blessed when you start working so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's gonna not only enrich them, but it's gonna enrich you. See, this new man, this life in Christ, has been raised up to add blessing and to move forward in life-giving purpose. We see that again in the next verse here. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So don't speak anything that's corrupt. Now, a lot of us might have a different gauge on well, what, what is corrupt words, right? What defines what a, a corrupt word is? Well, the very word corrupt means that which is rotten, putrefied, or or worthless, interesting, putrefied, rotten. You see, we can again as Christians kind of give a pass on speaking corrupt words. It can also have uh, in it the connotation of coarse or suggestive kind of a nature. And, And you think about those that, you know, maybe like to tell a dirty joke here and there and just kind of give it a pass. But for the believer, that's, that's not fitting any longer. Those are things that shouldn't be coming out. It's like taking a, a piece of fruit that's just gotten rotten. It's got mold on it, it's all mushy. Nobody would pick up a piece of fruit and go, ah, well, it's still fruit, and chomp down on it. I pray that nobody would do that, gross me out. You, you, you toss that thing aside, you say that's not, that's not edible any longer. That's how it should be for us is corrupt words where we go, oh man, that's, that's got some rottenness to it. It's not, it's not helpful edifying. It's not fitting for me any longer. There's no way I should be allowing this. And we put it away, Paul says. Here's the gauge to determine if what we're speaking is good or not. Is it adding encouragement and grace to them? Is it building others up? That's what he says there but speak what is good for necessary edification. That's that idea of building up, strengthening people. Is what you're saying adding and imparting strength and blessing to them? If it's not, you can say, I probably don't need to use these words or speak this way any longer because there's a good chance that it's just kind of rotten. See, our words are powerful and they, and they can be used to destroy or they can impart such blessing that they can pick up a life from the brink of disaster. Most Sundays, when I go home, my wife says, oh, you missed an opportunity there to share that song. See, her language is speaking in 80s or 90s contemporary Christian music, right? And so it's like, oh, you missed that song from Amy Grant that just totally, you know, paraphrased what you are trying to say there. I'm like, oh man, yeah, I missed it. Well, today I've got a song, this is for my baby here. I've got a song, Toby Mac. He, he spells it out well for us in his song, Speak Life, where he says this, Lift your head a little higher, spread the love like fire. Hope will fall like rain when you speak life with the words you say. Raise your thoughts a little higher. Use your words to inspire. Joy will fall like rain when you speak life with the things you say. So speak life, speak life to deadest, darkest night. Speak life, speak life when the sun won't shine and you don't know why. Look into the eyes of the brokenhearted. Watch them come alive. As soon as you speak hope, you speak love, you speak, you speak life, oh, 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 oh. Come on, people, you speak life. Oh, 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 okay. You guys, you guys were much better than those first two services. They were a little bit dry on that one. Well done. It's a service to service the Toby Mac fans. Okay. Anyways, but that's the idea, right? He makes it so clear. Like you have the opportunity to speak life into people with the words that you say, to encourage and edify people. And then he says in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul reveals here for us that there's more than just yourself to consider. There's more than just the world watching around you to consider. You've got the very Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you to be aware of in what you say and how you live, how you act, your attitudes, your thoughts. You've got much more than just people around you yourself to consider. You've got the very Spirit of God dwelling in you. Paul makes this very clear to us in the beginning of Ephesians when he says in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So understand this, my friends, that the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you became born again. The Holy Spirit is now dwelling in you. He gives the Holy Spirit to you as, what does he say there? As the the guarantee of our inheritance. It's like that down payment he gives you to say, you're mine now. I'm securing this and there's more to come. I'm gonna see you all the way through to eternity. He's given us the Holy Spirit as that guarantee of our redemption. Oh, we're redeemed now through the blood of Christ. We are saved, but we're awaiting our final redemption when we're given a glorified body and we're with Jesus for all of eternity. And we have a guarantee of that because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us as believers who put their trust in that finished work of Jesus Christ. So understand now that as you're living your life now, you have opportunity to grieve the very Spirit of God dwelling in you by corrupt words, by anger, by lying. Again, it's not just those around you that you have to consider, it's the very spirit within you that you can potentially be grieving by what you're doing. See, the Holy Spirit's coming in the world, we talked about this uh, uh, the other week, that the Holy Spirit's coming in the world to convict the world of sin, but not not only to convict the world of sin, but to testify Christ, to illuminate his word to us here. And when we're speaking that which is corrupt and unwholesome, well, it flies in direct conflict with who the Holy Spirit is and what he's come to do. Jesus said in John 15, 26, but when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Are you testifying of Christ? If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, that's what should be happening. And we are not testifying well of Christ if we're speaking unwholesome words, if we're prone to fits of rage and wrath and anger. If we're not people of truth, we're not testifying of Christ well. Are you grieving or pleasing God with your actions and attitudes? Are you grieving or pleasing Him? Because we have the opportunity to do one or the other. And I pray that we're pleasing Him in everything we do. Verse 31 it says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I love this again where all through this chapter and even what we were seeing last week in a message, Paul doesn't go through a bunch of steps as to here's how you overcome these things. He doesn't have a 10 step plan here. What does he say? Put it away. Put it off. It's like when you've got a, a t-shirt you've been wearing for a week straight and this thing's got stains on it. It's stinky. You don't sit and go, man, how am I gonna get this rectified? How am I gonna what? you just take the thing off? Burn it. Burn it. Throw it away if you need to. You don't have anything to do with it any longer. It's quite simple, put it away. That's what Paul's been saying to us. And again, understand, you do have the Holy Spirit as believers in you that not only has kind of convict the world of sin, testified Christ, but has given you the powering ability to live this life for Christ and in Christ. The Holy Spirit is here to equip you and empower you. It's not, you're not left to your own ability or strength. You, you are given strength through the Spirit and power to live this way. But it starts with you understanding what is not of God, what is a part of the old self, and to say, put it away. Take it off. But it's not just taking off, it's putting on, that which is good. So Paul lays out some of these things again, to put off, bitterness. Many people battle with bitterness because they've not surrendered past problems or hurts over to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 15 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And it might start very small and seemingly insignificant, but if it's left unchecked, that root will grow, and it's gonna produce rotten fruit, bitter fruit. So Paul says, put away bitterness. Don't let those things again continue to feed. It just adds poison to you. Put away bitterness, don't let it grow because it will get rooted in you and it's gonna produce that bitter fruit. And then he says wrath, put away wrath. This Greek word here is the, the word thumos, where we get our word thermometer from. You see, a lot of Christians act like thermometers where they allow the outside forces the climate, the circumstances around them to cause them to rise up with anger. And like the mercury and the thermometer, when things get hot, that thing just climbs. And the same for a lot of Christians. When things get hot around them, their anger and their, it just climbs to where it just turns into wrath and they just explode. But you see, I think Christians are to be more like thermostats. Thermostats is that which controls the environment around them that sets the temperature and says, this is what I want to see happening. And as Christians, we're to be those that are, are imparting that which is good into the world around us and, and, and seeing things settle to a point where we're adding peace. Again, we're adding this truth and love and blessing around us to where we're not rising with what's going on around us, but we're bringing a calm and a peace to what we do, being thermostats. Don't let wrath, have its way, and overcome you. And then anger. Again, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let unrighteous anger control you. This will inevitably lead to sin. The result of these things is just, it's fighting, it's conflict, it's a lack of peace, and the Christian should be all about adding peace, being peacemakers, because we've encountered the very peace of God. And you see, without that, what happens is that these, these next two words demonstrate the kind of lack of peace that happens, clamor. Clamor's next word that Paul says, and that is the idea of fighting and, and even fighting with a fist, it's brawling. Evil speaking is fighting with words where we're seeking to tear others down by bad, evil speaking, intent of harm. And then malice is again that evil intent. See, all these vices may feel like they're things you just need to deal with kind of on a personal level, right? Well, I'll deal with my bitterness, I'll deal with my anger, I'll deal with my wrath, I'll take care of those things. And that might be true, but understand that they will cause you, if left unchecked, to grow in malice, which brings about harmful intent to others. These don't just affect you, but they hurt others. Well, how do we work through these things then? I think Paul lays it out so clearly here in this last verse. I love how he ends this chapter and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. How How do we work through these things? We be quick to forgive, we walk in grace. Don't harbor hurts, but give it over to Jesus. Yeah, that's easy to say, it's another thing to do. I get it, I understand, I know this is difficult, but Jesus here becomes our great example in this. He forgave us when we were undeserving. When we didn't, and too often, what do we say? Well, this person hasn't even asked for an apology. They haven't even come and made amends and they don't deserve my forgiveness. Neither did I. When Jesus died on a cross and we died for the whole world when we were still sinners, we didn't deserve his mercy or his grace. We didn't deserve his forgiveness. See, it may feel good at times to hold something against another, But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that to you? When he had every right to say, I'm gonna wait and see if you can get your act together before I really forgive you. I wanna see if you really mean business here because if you're just, you know, using this, well, no, it's not. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm gonna give grace to you freely. I'm gonna forgive you by my grace. That free gift that is undeserving. That's what Jesus does for us. And the more that you understand the great grace that was extended to you, the forgiveness that's been given to you through him, the more you're gonna be ready to give that to others. Man, I read on Twitter last night a quote from Mr. T of all people. And he said this, "Saved people are both forgiven and forgiving. Unforgiving people prove that they have never known God's love or mercy. And he said it well there. Saved people are both forgiven and forgiving. Forgiveness is the key to putting away these old sinful traits that we've seen in these verses here that can so easily get a hold of us and that Satan gets a hold of and compounds it, causes them to grow and intensify. But forgiveness is that which can release all those things. Again, I think of the song, two songs now today. The song Matthew S sings, for, when he, it's a song called Forgiveness. And he says, you know, the prisoner that you really free is you. Because we think, oh, I'm gonna hold this against this person. And then we think, forgiveness is like, okay, I'm gonna release you. you don't, uh, I'm not gonna hold this over you any longer. But you know, when we forgive, the one that's really been imprisoned by the unforgiveness and all these, these attitudes, we imprison ourselves. We hurt ourselves. But when we forgive, we release ourselves of all of that. We become free. There's another song that comes to mind. This one by Audio Adrenaline. Ocean floor. It says, your sins are erased and they are no more. They're on the ocean floor. You see, this is what Jesus did for us. He didn't just forgive us, he, he puts away our sin where they're no longer held against us. And that's what forgiveness does. It says, I'm no longer gonna dwell on this. I'm no longer gonna think about this. I'm no longer gonna hold this against you. I'm gonna not just release you, I'm gonna release myself from this. I'm not gonna let this have any kind of power or sway in me any longer. And we forgive, suddenly we see bitterness, anger, all these things just Go by the wayside. When the Moravian missionaries first went to the Eskimos, they could not find a word in their language for forgiveness. So they had a compound one. This turned out to be, and say it with me. (coughs) It's, (laughs) yeah, I have no idea. But it's a formidable looking assembly letters, but an expression that has a beautiful connotation for those who understand it. It means not being able to think about it anymore. That's what that word became for them in forgiveness, not being able to think about it anymore. In other words, I no longer, I'm gonna hold this against you. Stop dwelling on things you don't like in others or what others have done against you. Dwell on what Jesus has done for you and extend the same to others. Walk in forgiveness, free yourself of these things, free others, walk in truth, Walk in love, walk in grace, and understand that's exactly what you've been given in and through Jesus Christ. May we extend that to others. And may we see as we do all these old things getting put aside, laying down the old, putting on the new, walking in Christ and with Christ, and being that reflection of him in our lives. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word here. Your word is so good, always good, Lord, and we just take delight in feeding on it here today. And I pray that you would encourage my, my brothers and sisters here this morning, watching online here, that, Lord, we've received so much in you, newness of life, how incredible. And Lord, I pray that we'd be reminded of the great cost it was for you to bring forgiveness, but you've done that, Lord, freely when we least deserved it. And I pray that as we understand that more that we would walk in that newness of life you've given to us, Lord. We'd reflect you. And just as you came and brought forgiveness to us when we least deserved it, may we be those walking in forgiveness to others. Help us in that. And while you just think about that right now with your eyes closed, dwell on the goodness of God, I want to ask those that are maybe sitting here listening to this message or those watching online right now, and maybe you've thought about this and thought, I don't know if I've ever received that forgiveness of God, at least I don't know if I've ever really asked for that clearly. And I want to invite you today to receive that forgiveness of sins and to experience New life in Christ today. Because Jesus came into this world for a specific reason, to die on a cross. Because in doing so, he was paying the price for the penalty of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And by dying on a cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. He took the judgment of God for your sin. But he died and he rose again to signify that those sins are paid for. And life can now be imparted to you But here's what you need to do. You need to understand and confess your sin that you're a sinner and in need of salvation. And as you turn to Jesus now and say, Jesus, forgive me my sin, come into my life, be my Lord and my savior, I want your life. When you pray that and ask for that, you don't have to earn it or work for it. It's that free gift he gives to you immediately. And in praying that, you become a born again child of God. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And if you've never done that before, I encourage you right now, receive that today. Ask for that forgiveness of sin, ask Him to come in your life, and it's not asking, it's simply confessing and accepting it for yourself. Become a child of God today, and know that you have life not only now, but life eternally, because sins are dealt with, forgiven, they're removed and you become a new creation in Christ. Would you accept that, receive that today? And if you have, I encourage you to write in, email our church, let us know, and we'd love to get in touch with you and share more with you. And if you're here this morning in this place, come and talk to me after the service, I'd love to share more with you about that. But know that forgiveness of sin and life in Christ can be yours today with the assurance of salvation, assurance of eternal life. Praise the Lord for that. So we thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. May we continue on living this week in that life and reflecting you in everything we do. We pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Amen, Amen. Amen. praise the Lord.